Final Night Poetry Slam. I want to sew the world into its sheets. I want to beat it with a bat until the warning sticks. A handgun is a machine. I'm tired of holding the wounded animal of my heart and instructing it on how to bleed. All I see are stars in the mouth of a tiny ghost. Can you hear that? All those pins dropping. Hello and welcome back to the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. I'm so glad you could join us for another week of amazing poetry and hopefully some good insights on what's going on in the world of uh, Mile High Poetry Slam. Before we get into the breakdown of the open mic and the slam, I did want to say another huge thank you to last week's guest, PSI, Poetry Slam Incorporated, Executive Director Susie Q. Smith. Another fantastic interview, and she was so great, so generous with her time, and so open with all of her answers. I just wanted to publicly say thank you once again to Susie. Um, We're going to have a great, great guest for you today on this week's edition of the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. We have the four-time champion of Slam Nuba, Hoser Guerrero, talking to us, and he was so very good he was uh such a good interview because he really dug deep he really gave us a lot of insights and and really went beyond just your your typical patent answers for the questions i asked him and he really wanted to dig down and and let me and let the people out there listening know about his process about performance about writing about uh his approach to art in general so he was a fantastic interview i will say that I did interview Hoser in a coffee shop, and the coffee shop was very, very loud, so I apologize in advance, but there's a lot of ambient noise on this interview. You can still hear all of his responses. He's he's clear. Uh, You can still make out everything he's saying, but the noises can be a little distracting, so I apologize in advance, but I'm going to bank on the content overcoming all of the distractions and the noises. Uh, Another quick thing before we get into the recap of what happened on last week's Open Mic and Slam with Mercury Cafe, I put up a message uh, in my Facebook, and those who are not Facebook friends with me, you should become Facebook friends with me, Uh, Eddie Eifler, E-I-F-L-E-R on Facebook, or underscore, uh, Eddie underscore Eifler on Twitter. Uh, so you just you should definitely become uh, social media friends with me and get updates on when each episode drops and and just find out what's going on in Denver poetry news as it happens. But I put up a post on my Facebook about after the team selection, I'm pretty sure I got retired, and I have been really feeling that this last week or so. I really do feel like that my place in performance and my place in the local Denver Slam is really not necessary at this point. I I feel like I've been in the game pretty long. Uh, I've been doing this for 13 years, on and off. I took a couple of years off so I could go back to school and really kind of get my life together. But then once I did come back in 2012, I've been pretty active and, and pretty regular ever since then. But I feel like now the people that we have performing, the the core of 
of voices that we have, really, I, I don't think I could contribute any more to it. I don't feel like it, it really is my space to take up on that stage in a slam anymore. And I, I don't mean that in a negative way. I don't mean that to kind of, uh, I don't mean that to elicit sympathy. I don't mean that to try and get people to, you know, talk me out of it. It really is a good thing. It, it really is a good thing for someone who's been doing it as long as I have to see the state of what's going on in this slam and be comfortable by stepping away. Be comfortable saying, you know what, I've, I've put what I can put into this and now it's time to take a step back and see if the work that I put in is going to continue in other ways. Uh, we, can, we can definitely see the fruits of the work put in, not just by me, but by people doing it a lot longer than me by your Ian Doggerty's, by your Ted Bacchus, by your Kate McKay's, your Andrea Gibson's. We can definitely see the work that these people have been putting in, manifesting in the voices that come after them. And so I'm, I'm very, very excited, very, very happy to see the core of people that are up on stage on a regular basis, that are contributing their voices to the slam every week, week in and week out. And I just don't feel like there's a place for me amongst all the, the voices that are regular amongst all the voices that regularly show up and, and contribute and that's not a bad thing it means that uh, I feel like my work is over at least for this part of my life and this is not to say that I will stop performing it's not to say I will stop writing it's not to say I won't get up on the open mic every once in a while because those things are definitely gonna happen I just feel like it's not my place to take up a spot on the slam list and that's okay. I, I don't need to slam. And I think the the future is very bright for the Mercury Cafe. It made even more so by me not being there. And I know that sounds very disparaging. I'm really not trying to put myself down. I'm really not trying to garner any kind of sympathy. That's just the way that I personally feel right now with regard to my position in slam. So, yeah. Follow me through as I keep on giving you updates every week, letting you know what's going on out there. If you're listening from the Denver metro area or from a different state or from a different country, I'm so happy to have your ears and, and to have your attention for this time that I have it. So let's go ahead and dive on into the Mercury Cafe. Denver! 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 Queen City of the Plains! Lift high our spirits! Sing well our praise, for in you we live and are loved. Alright, this week's Mercury Cafe Slam open mic had nine members on it. We had Isaiah W., Justin Lee, we had Franklin Cruz stop by, Nathan Phillips, we had Alyssa, Paula Rose, Johnny Osai, Emily Camp, and Connor Marvin. That is quite a stacked open mic list. I don't care where you're at. I don't care what part of the country or part of the world you're listening to. Those are some excellent, excellent names. Uh, first up, I want to play you a clip from Franklin Cruz. And I think this is most notable because Franklin completely freestyled this entire poem. He completely made it all up on the spot. And he had the crowd exactly where he wanted him. Had him right in the palm of his hand. So much so that he talked to me afterwards and said that he wanted the audio from this. He wanted to take a, a listen to this so he could write it out and maybe you know play with it a little bit, you know, tweak it and, and add some more stuff here and take away some stuff there. But he thought it was a really great foundation for a poem, and I could not disagree. So here's a clip from Franklin Cruz doing a freestyle. 
But the thing is, is when it walks, things shatter. When it walks, things move. When it walks, things sing. It doesn't know how much noise it makes because it's covering its ears half the time. I am always, always impressed with poets, with MCs, with anyone who can just freestyle something coherent and and lucid off the top of their head without any kind of prompting. And Franklin ha has been working hard at this particular skill, and we can definitely tell that it's paying off for him. This was one of those poems that did not seem like it was freestyled. It did not seem like he was making it up on the spot. It seemed like he had it memorized and he was going off the dome and and letting people know uh, something that had been polished for at least a little bit. But you know what? That's the brilliance of Franklin Cruz. So I really appreciate him getting up there and not just like doing a throwaway time slot, not just being like, hey, can I get up there and just freestyle? But really taking the time and the effort and the energy to, to say what he would like to say in a poetic manner that does not sound like he's just making it up. So it was great. It was a, a, really, a really appropriate way to kick off the first half of this open mic. Uh, after Franklin, I want to play you a clip from Johnny Osai, who got up and just started doing insanely personal pieces. Really, really personal stuff. He's been doing the work. He's been digging down deep into some memories and talking about uh, personal trauma, talking about survival in a way that he has not done before. And this is not to disparage anything that has come in the past. Uh, Johnny is one of the better writers, one of the better performers, and he has never shied away from the hard subjects. He's never shied away from the tough uh, poems to write but these two poems that he read at the open mic were on a whole different level of personal and a whole different level of healing so I'll play you a clip from the second poem that he read I tell myself it doesn't matter this shit's already happened at least I'm in control now at least this part is my choice even though it isn't in this poem we learn a lot about Johnny not just as a person who he is now but as a person that he has been he talked a lot about this one particular night where he and a friend of his set up this idea of um, group sex and about the entire refrain, the entire uh, repetition throughout this second poem was that he did not want this. He did not want this. When the, when the strange woman comes up and talks to him, he wants her to go away. When she becomes more flirtatious, he does not like her advances, but that something inside him, something about him keeps accepting these advances, keeps allowing them to happen until eventually they reach their, their inevitable course. And he ends this poem by talking about his reaction to when someone asks him if he's ever had a threesome or a three-way. And he says, well, yeah, in a joking way, even though it was not a fun experience for him, even though it was not a positive experience for him, because the socialization of men in our country is such that it's something he quote-unquote should be proud of but he's he recounts to us during the course of this poem that it was unwanted that he did not want this to happen he just kept going along with it for uh, reasons maybe not known to him back then but what was very apparent was that he was uncomfortable but just kept going along with it anyway again really personal really doing the the deep work really digging into the things that he has survived and his commentary on them so my hats off to Johnny Osai after that we had Emily Camp uh, who we have not heard in a little while it's been a number of weeks since Emily got up there and you know what it's always refreshing when Emily gets up and reads anything it it's one of those it's one of those situations where as someone who is at least 
tangentially involved in the organization of the slam emily is a voice i would much prefer to see here on the slam instead of the open mic of course i will take emily wherever i can get them uh, i will take emily on the open mic i will take emily on a street corner i will take emily uh just in a blog post you know uh, in whatever form but but really uh, i i would really love to hear this voice in a slam because i think this is exactly the the kind of voice that slam rewards the kind of writing that is more uh, applicable to that venue but it, it's not my place to say okay emily get in the slam that's not what i'm trying to trying to say and i'm not trying to push anyone i'm not trying to to make anyone feel uncomfortable i just personally think had i my druthers had i uh, my wish then emily would be competing in and winning slams on a regular basis so let me play you a clip from this poem uh, we're going in the same thread of Johnny this is a very very personal piece about a friend of Emily's who had a sibling uh, who took their own life and the reaction of the family from that horrible horrible tragedy let me play you a clip from Emily Camp's piece. Losing voice between sobs she mustered up words Jennifer I want you to know I'm not weeping for your brother's loss in many ways, I feel this world is better with lesser of his kind. I am weeping because I know my son is now in hell. Just appalling at some of the things that religion, some of the things that society, some of the things that socialization can push people to do. Yeah, it, it really is difficult to listen to these kinds of stories, but I think important to listen to these kinds of stories because it reminds us just how much work there is still left to be done on the fronts of social justice, on the fronts of equality and equity. So another big hat tip, another big thank you to Emily Camp for getting up there and reading this very powerful piece. And I want to end off the open mic section of this week's podcast with Connor Marvin, the poetic prince of Denver. Connor Marvin, what more can be said about this guy that has not been said besides the fact that he's brilliant, besides the fact that his craft, that his his writing is unafraid to go and explore new territories he is unafraid to experiment he's unafraid to uh, start something even if he doesn't know where it's going to lead to he is unafraid to follow those starts to their inevitable conclusion and this is another poem in that same vein he begins this poem with an ode to ernest hemingway uh, the very famous story about how ernest hemingway wrote the six-word novel the for sale baby shoes uh never worn and so he he takes that idea of uh, never never used only used once and and really kind of turns it on its head and that allows him to discuss a number of different topics in a number of different ways the the part that stuck out to me that is not on this clip is when he's talking about uh, ancient greek mythology when he's talking about uh, hercules and his club and when he's talking about uh, Oedipus and his eyes and Demeter and all of these these references to Greek mythology that that really hit a personal chord with me because I've just always been fascinated by it I've always loved ancient myths and, and especially Greek myths that for some reason they've always really connected with me and spoken with me in a way that the Roman Roman mythology just has not but the clip I'm gonna play you is actually something that I wanted to start a brand new conversation about. Let me play you the clip and then let you know why I chose this particular clip to play. I don't put much honest first person present tense self in my poems anymore because the truth is 
I'm doing great, and I'm ashamed I'll come off as arrogant because to me, doing great is arrogant. I'm terrified that my ascent from suicide and failure somehow changed, chained another to the hell I was lifted from. So the reason I chose this clip to play is maybe because it's this podcast, maybe because it's my changing role in the community, maybe it's because I'm just growing older and, and as an older ear in the room, I'm hearing things differently and I'm picking up on things that I never really picked up on before. But I wanted to play this particular clip because I feel like most poems about survival, most poems about trauma and tragedy are written from a perspective or a point of view where the poet or the narrator or the author is somehow removed from that trauma or that tragedy or that that thing in which that person survived. But Connor really does address this idea of placing himself personally in the poem in the moment. When he says he doesn't write a whole lot of first person, uh, doesn't write a whole lot in first person pronouns, at least honestly. And that really struck me. Not, not because it had anything to do with the mythology, not because it had anything to do with the device that he was using, but because he really does kind of tackle this issue head on. He says very plainly that the reason he doesn't write this way is because he feels like doing fine is arrogant. Like if he is doing okay, then he should feel bad for doing okay. And right now he is doing okay. Maybe if he were going through some kind of tragedy or trauma right now, it'd be okay for him to write that first person honest pronoun in a way that addresses that tragedy, but he just doesn't. And I feel like even when you talk about that tragedy, a lot of poets will steer clear of how that affects them or influences them in the moment, in the present tense. Most poets, because it's, it's just safer to do this, it's safer emotionally, it's safer from a craft perspective, will write from the perspective of that trauma as if they themselves are removed from it in some way. Either it happened to someone else or it happened to that poet, but it happened uh, some years ago or some time long enough ago that the poet has now survived this trauma or has now moved past it or incorporated it into their own personal identity. And this is not to say that Connor is the first person to tackle this particular perspective problem. This is not to say he's the first poet to really come out and and put himself squarely present tense in the middle of his poem and address it from what is happening on stage right now. He is definitely not the first person to do that. He's not the first poet to do that. Uh, but like I said at the front side of this, maybe it's because I'm hearing with a different ear. Maybe it's because my role is changing in the community, but that particular device really resonated with me, mostly because when I know I'm about to hear something about trauma or about survival, I, I can expect for the speaker for the personal eye in that poem to be removed from that trauma and talk about it from a place of survival, from a place of uh, incorporating it into their identity. Of course, you've got your Andrea Gibsons, of course you've got your Kate McKay's, you've got your uh, other poets who have done this in the past, but I just, maybe it was because I was not at the same place at that point when I heard those poems as I am now that they just didn't strike me in the same way that this did. So. That's my way of starting this conversation. If any poets out there hearing this 
want to take up that challenge, then I think it would be very interesting if we started hearing more poems written from the perspective of right now and how, even if it's a traumatic piece, how that trauma is affecting or influencing that poet in real time. And if you want to talk about honesty and if you want to talk about uh, vulnerability, I think that's perhaps the most vulnerable that a poet can be. Not talking about what happened to them in the past or what happened to a person that they know, but what is right now happening to them. Even if it's what Connor's talking about, even if you're doing okay, even if you're doing fine, it takes a whole lot of courage and vulnerability to get up in front of a, a crowd of people who are used to hearing these these poems about survival, these poems about trauma and and identity, and say, you know what? I've had bad things happen to me in the past, and they're always going to stick with me. But as of right now, I'm actually doing okay. That is so affirming. That is so empowering to a group of people that I think it would be very, very powerful if we heard a little more of that. Um, let me know. Let me know if it's something that you are interested in. And the best way you can let me know is by signing up for the Open Mic Slam at the Mercury Cafe or going to Slam Nuba or going to uh, any one of the other open mics either in this town, in this venue, in this place or at your own venue. If you are in you know, uh, California, if you are in Texas, if you are in Australia, then maybe take this challenge upon yourself. Let me know how it works out for you. Hit me up on social media, Eddie Eifler, E-I-F-L-E-R, and break it down and let me know. So that'll do it for our open mic. Now let's talk about your slam. All right, in your slam, we had quite a stacked night for you. Our sacrifice for the slam was Johanna, and first up was Jess Nieberg, then Changa, brand new uh, slam voice. We had Griff Winlin, another brand new voice. Stylo Marks, Piper Mullins, Megan Fally, Wheeler Lights, and Jamon Hill in the first round. Uh, the first round was notable in that Jess Nieberg went first overall and made it into the second round, which is something that doesn't happen very often. It was also notable because we had so many new voices there. Changa going up for the first time, Griff Winland going up for the first time, uh, Stylo Marks unafraid of getting up there and completely bucking style, bucking tradition, and just doing what he wants to do in that moment. Uh, the first clip I am going to play you is from Jess Nieberg, because like I said, it's notable in that Jess goes up first in the first round and still makes it into the second round, which does not always happen, especially in a slam that has this many heavy hitters, Piper Mullins, Megan Filey, Wheeler Light, Jamon Hill. Uh, but Jess definitely set the tone for this first round. I am now vacuum sealed, so preserved, so ripe and raw. They say they like it better raw, want to know how many meals they can make of me until it gets too bloody. Now, if this is indicative of the new work that Jess is producing, then I am very excited to hear what comes next. In the same vein as Connor Marvin from the open mic, Jess places her first person honest self in this poem and I think that makes what she's saying all the more powerful she's not saying you know I was these things or or I I used to be these things she's saying I am this thing and 
the the reaction that that causes and the the way that people have treated her and the and the way that people react to her because she is this thing so powerful so good and i think that's largely why she left the such an impression on the audience on the judges to make it into the second round the next clip i'm going to play for you is from Piper Mullins, another brand new work, first time that uh, they have ever read this poem from the stage. This was Exit Signs, uh, all about reacting and all about all about addressing this idea that poetry heals, that poetry saves lives. And sometimes the poems you hear from a stage, from a slam, were never intended for your approval, for the audience, for the, the random uh, passerby. And so this connects to something that I have been talking a lot to my guests about, my interviews, this idea of safe space. Because it's becoming more and more clear to me and hopefully to anyone who listens to this podcast that there really is no such thing as a safe space, at least not a safe emotional space. Yet we like to try and protect ourselves, we like to try and protect other people as much as possible from emotional harm, but a slam, according to Susie Q. Smith, by its very nature, by its definition, is an unsafe space. It is completely open, uncensored, a completely free microphone where people have up to three minutes to get up there and say or do anything they want. And so this is what Piper Mullins is talking about, not just this idea of safe space, but this idea of uh, poetry can be empowering, poetry can be healing, and the most empowering, the most healing poems are the ones that might make the audience a little uncomfortable. But but free speech is a conversation, it is a two-way street. So if any of these poems do make you uncomfortable, if any of these poems do offend you or do trigger you, you know what? There are exit signs in the room. You can leave. Instead of trying to attack the poet on stage or trying to attack the content on the stage, especially in a social media platform, in a way that does not direct, directly address that poet, in a way that does not directly communicate with that poet. So here's a clip from Exit Signs. Put simply, this room comes complete with exits on either side. If this healing makes you uncomfortable, you can fucking leave. I don't think I could have put it any more succinctly than that. You know what? If you don't like it, then you can leave from Piper Mullins. Uh, next up, I'm going to play you a clip from Megan Fally, who is coming with the new stuff. Uh, a lot of new work being read in this first round. I'm pretty sure we had new work from Jess, definitely new work from Changa and Griff and Stylo Marks, new work from Piper, new work from Megan, from Wheeler Light. Uh, I'm not too sure about uh, Jamon Hill, but it seemed like these poems were on the newer side. So another big theme from the first round tonight of new work of new voices, new readers, or, or new takes from old voices uh, makes you really excited for the future, makes you really happy about what is happening on this stage. Uh, Megan Fally uh, really does play, does play medical examiner of uh, her last relationship where she likes to be the grief uh, cartographer, really dig down deep and, and pinpoint when exactly this last relationship went wrong. And this uh, poem was notable for its unbelievable imagery, for its unbelievable thematic presence. Um, the, the clip that I'm going to play you really does not do it justice. But just so you get a little taste of what we had on Sunday, here's Megan Fally. You say you don't think it would help to pinpoint the exact moment we fell out of love. But you know me. 
grief cartographer, plotting the coordinates of loss. And so starting from that point, this idea of a grief cartographer really allows Megan to explore the, the loss of this relationship, not just in a negative way. Megan uh, tempers the, the negative, tempers the bad fallout of this relationship with the good memories, with that time we found out it wasn't cancer, or that time you got a ukulele and we made a two-person band. So the good parts of this relationship, even if she is no longer in this relationship, which is always the most powerful sort of examination because it's very easy to just get up on stage and say, my ex was awful and I hated every minute that I was with you. I don't know why I spent four years of my life. Well, now you do know why you spent four years of your life or however long with this person because there were actually good moments and it's okay to remember that relationship in full. It's okay to take the good with the bad. So uh, another great newer piece from Megan Fally. We had Wheeler Light come up with a brand new piece that he read off paper. And Wheeler Light really does go after the idea of ownership in this piece. He goes after this idea of uh, appropriation and incorporating narratives that are not your own for the sake of scores. And it really is not a, a good byproduct of this thing we call slam. That, that someone can get up there and for all anyone in the audience knows, read a story that, that is personal and connects in a, in a real way to that poet, but could be completely fabricated, could be completely made up. And I've been there, poet, writing about shit that's not my shit, because I thought if I appropriated, I would win, and we both have so much to write about, we are both so obviously full of shit to write about. These appropriative stories... Uh, we need to be very careful as poets that if we are uh, embodying a, a voice that is not our natural one, if we are telling a story from a first-person perspective that is not our own perspective, I think it's important for us to make clear that that is a persona piece, that that is something that we can discuss and that we can write about, but not to pass it off as our own stories because then we get into dishonesty we get into just writing a poem to get a good score because we think this story will score well and you know what that story might score well it might score even better it might have a drop off whatever but we'll never know if you preface it or if you let your audience know that this is not your particular personal narrative your particular personal story so uh, Wheeler Light really going after that but he follows it up by saying, we all have our own stuff to talk about. We all have our own stories. So let's write about those instead. Let's not try to take something that doesn't quote-unquote belong to us and work with what's there. So that was Wheeler Light making a, a big impression on that first round. And then last up in that first round was Jamon Hill, who came with a little bit more of the levity in this first round. He dissects the brand new Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie in a racial lens that uh, really does lighten the mood but still is very poignant. It's, it's heavy, it's serious, but it has lighter parts to it. So Jamon Hill, uh, here's your clip from his first poem, The Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. We see diversity on steroids like, let's put the black kid on the spectrum and get a two-for-one token deal. Make the Latina girl LGBTQIA plus for box office views. And based off the strength of that poem, Jamon Hill had the high score out of the first round. Uh, another notable 
occurrence, another notable event in that first round, is that Megan Fowley chose to read a poem that went pretty well over time. Uh, Megan got, I believe, a two-point time penalty. And had she not gotten that time penalty, she would have been the high score. But because she got it, she was left out of the cut completely and did not make it into the second round. So Jamon Hill was your high-scoring poet, and instead of deciding to go last in the second round, he decided to go third out of fourth, uh, which is a, a strategic gamble, but it, it looks like it paid off for him. So in your second round, we had Jess Nieberg, Wheeler Light, Jamon Hill going third, and Piper Mullins going fourth. In the second clip I'm going to play you from Jamon, he really attacked Donald Trump in an interesting way, in a way that I personally have not heard before, where he uses Donald Trump's uh, toupee, his hairpiece, as a metaphor for all these executive orders and, and how he is choosing to exercise his executive powers in the White House. Uh, very, very clever. I'll play you a clip from that poem. Like, did he actually understand how the hair care worked? Or did he just try to push it through as fast as he could while he paid people to tell him it looked pretty? Did you just push it through as fast as possible and then pay people to tell you it looked pretty? Such a biting satire, such a biting commentary on Donald Trump's first 120 days in office. And following up that, we had Piper Mullins. Uh, Piper reading another new-ish piece. Uh, Piper's never slammed with this particular poem, but did read it to uh, help kick off the slam off from last week. Uh, not for the slam off itself, but for the open mic. And uh, back in last week in the open mic, had the entire crowd exactly where they wanted them. Um, it was it was really a treat to watch. Uh, trying to catch lightning in a bottle with this particular rendition, but this poem just did not have the same magic as it did a week ago. So uh, Piper ended up not making the cut, but I think this poem is so well done, is so well crafted, that I did want to play you a clip from that piece. God only speaks to me through other people's poems these days. God tells me I should set all my journals on fire. God tells me there is only so much listening to do when you smell like sulfur. The imagery is very, very striking in this poem uh, when Piper talks about how boys taste and how girls taste and, and uh, the poet doesn't know how they taste. Um, it really is a way to talk about identity. It really is a way to talk about uh, trauma in a different and interesting way. Um, this idea that uh, you can swallow one matchstick and it tastes a little bit salty, but it, it, if you swallow a whole handful of them, or if you swallow enough of them, they don't taste like anything at all. Uh, saying so much in such a small amount of space. Uh, really a testament to the craft of that poem. So that was your second round. And in your third round, we had Wheeler Light, and Jamon Hill had the high score one more time. Wheeler Light went up there and read a piece I'd only heard maybe once or twice before. It was this uh, piece built on lawyer jokes, but he really uses these lawyer jokes to talk about his personal family history, about how his dad was abusive and how his, his mom really wanted to work her way into being a professional lawyer and how the dad felt threatened by this. And it's all framed within this context of lawyer jokes and Wheeler completely turns those lawyer jokes on their head with this clip in this poem. And I, I like to tell this joke sometimes. What's the difference between an abusive father and a house fire? One will take everything from you, family photos, prized possessions, the house you grew up in, sometimes even your skin. And the other is a house fire. 
so powerful. What's the difference between an abusive father and a house fire? Well, one will take everything from you, and the other one is a house fire. So good, so well done. And I think Wheeler, uh, for once again, uh, Wheeler just got the the bad luck of a bad placement and was outdrawn by Jamon Hill in the final round. I really do think this came up to a coin toss between the two, and whoever read last was going to win the whole night. And Jamon just happened to have the high score going into the final round, so he decided to go last and ended up winning the night. I'll play you a clip from the pawn that he used to take that victory home. As the first dove takes off, and the second dove takes off, and the third dove takes off, and the fourth... Well, the fourth dove gets hit by a truck. And ain't that a metaphor for America? Now, this poem uh, really did address this idea of a dove. It really addressed this idea of funerals and black funerals, and even at the, the black funerals that only allow the white people to handle the white doves. They won't allow a, a black dove handler. But then the fourth dove goes and gets released and gets hit by a truck on the highway. And ain't that a metaphor for America? It was really good, really well done. Um, and Jamon ended up taking the whole night home. Uh, he won with different poem choices. He had a very different voice than a lot of the other poems on the stage that night, mostly about racial identity. His craft was really good, really lucid, but he stood out with his content. Uh, a lot of themes he touched on were reclaiming his identity. He was very critical of the portrayal of the black experience. He was very critical of Donald Trump, very critical of even at a black person's funeral there are these white doves and white handlers but uh, that doesn't stop these white doves sometimes from getting hit by a truck on the highway uh, yeah so uh, that was your slam from last week and now it is my honor my privilege to bring to you our interview for this week the one and only hoser guerrero our guest this week is four-time slam nuba champion Jose, Hoser Guerrero. How you doing, Hoser? I'm doing well, man. Thank you for having me. I got some questions for you, if you don't mind. All right. Uh, number one, the question I start off with everyone. Why Slam? What brought you into Slam initially? Ooh. Um, I think every time I answer this question, it probably changes. Like, to, But I think the main reason was... Um, I think I found an avenue where I could be successful, like the competitive aspect of it definitely brought me into it. I think that uh, Slam really allowed me to connect with, uh, like make hip hop and spoken word poetry, it really allowed me to sort of bridge both of them because it felt like it was, uh, it was a hip hop battle, right? And so that element of, of it attracted me uh, immediately. Um, you know, I also was really into sports my whole life, and so it felt like this was the version of sports, you know what I mean, like for, for poets, for people who wanted to be creative, this was the, the way to go. And then also because um, I feel like people who, who join SLAM or start practicing it um, sometimes struggle to find victories in life, you know what I mean? like. Whether it's a job interview that you did well in or got a job, we struggle sometimes with that. You know, society kind of beats us up sometimes. So I feel like the slam is a is a venue or an avenue where people can be successful and win. And like you know, like there's so many different ways you can win. You can win the round, or you can win the whole slam. 
but it allows us to be successful and, and winners. And some of us probably have never been winners before, you know what I mean? So, like, that was life-changing, man. Like, you know, I've always played sports, and I always thought I was good, but, like, you know, never to, to say, like, I felt like I, I killed it tonight or, you know, like, I, I was the best out there tonight. Uh, and, of course, everyone has different definitions of what that means, but that definitely was an interesting thing that, that hooked me right away and, and helped me really, like, discover my voice um, afterwards as well. Well, you recently became the first ever four-time venue champ in Slam Uba. Uh What does it mean to you to be such a long-running venue champ? And what responsibilities do you feel being uh, the top scorer at Slam Nuba? Uh, well, you know, um, Slam Nuba was probably the first venue that, like, really allowed me to, like, feel like people of color... Um, were also successful in this art form um, just because of all of the, the poets that I had with, met and, and um, even were mentored by most of them were always white men and so when I came to Slam Nuba I remember um, I, I like had to like show up like an hour early to sign up on the list for the open mic and so I was like oh man this is a whole new place that I discovered um, where, I, where I felt I felt well um, a little bit more comfortable, right? Um, it felt like some of the narratives that were being spoken uh, here were, or the ones that I was writing about were just a little bit more welcomed as far as, like, the audience. Um, so when I first slammed off, I remember how difficult it was to make the team um, just because everyone wanted to be on that squad. And the year that I slammed off was the year that they what, that Slam Nuba won nationals. So it was like, oh man, like I, I really wanted to be a part of that squad. And so ever since then, I've kind of just dedicated myself to trying to, to get back to the team. Um, and I think the victories are just an added bonus to that. Um, really, what we always tell each other every year is, you know, we're just trying to make the team. I think that every year you have, as a poet, you have a really, really good opportunity that you're not going to be on the team. And so I feel like... Um, my goal is just to like to make my performance keep my performance fresh and make sure that it impacts people as much as I wanted to every single time. I think it's my obligation as a, a poet to continue to slam because um, or perform in the open mic list or whatever it is because then we we nur we nourish that future generation as well. Um, I am a product of that myself experiencing that watching you and Ken and you know, Panama and Theo um, practice slam and continue to do it, and that inspired us when we were kids writing for for the for the youth team minor disturbance. It really encouraged us to. It gave us someone to look forward to. You know, it gave us someone to to look up to. I mean, and uh, idolize or want to be like them, and and to be like 100% real, right? We were all waiting for the day when we could say we beat you guys. You know what I mean? <laughs> where we count that off on our bucket list yeah. and, you know boom and so it feels like um, you know my obligation for that and, and for a lot of people I've heard a lot of people say this is you know we gotta come back even if it is two or three times a year to at least hope that you other people see you and they're like oh I work you know like that's there's a scene here right you, there, it's not abandoned there's, 
there's OGs, there's rookies, there's people who have been doing it for a little bit. And, you know, I think that's just kind of our responsibility to keep the scene alive. What responsibilities do you feel being the venue champ? Do you put any extra pressure on yourself or do you treat it just like if you were to, you know, be the fifth person on this team? That's a good question, man. I think in the years, in the past, I have taken that as an extra weight on my shoulders, feeling like I have to lead the team, right? And I, and I um, honestly, like throughout the entire year, I brainstorm ideas about what the team could write, you know, like not just this week. Like I, I have like 20 ideas already for this year's team that I developed just this summer. Um, so. I do put some of that pressure on myself because I want to uphold that like legacy that like poets who have been on Slam Nuba prior than I, like you know that reputation that Slam Nuba is a, a, a good team and a successful team, and I want people to appreciate our work not only as a group but as individuals as well. And you know, as a as a as a drama guy, as a theater background, I love the performance aspect of it. So I always kind of see myself really. Um, as my like duty to try to incorporate some of those performing aspects and share them with the team uh, but you know what this year I, I talked to myself about it and I, I, I thought about that and I said um, you know maybe I am I am not I'm, I'm shaping it a little too much maybe I'm contributing too much and I'm not allowing other people's voices to shine as much as is, is, is you know like maybe sometimes my voice shines in some of those things and so I really tried this year to, to just lay back man and I'm gonna try as much as I can to allow other people to also um, you know take over leadership and rock with it um, but of course I'm gonna be trying to do my best as well you know but I also I think that should be for all of us at some point we should kind of realize that you know, like the, the pressure one, the pressure shouldn't be on you because that makes it so much difficult for you to actually produce good work. That's not like pressured work, you know, like commissioned work where you're sitting there, I have to finish this poem by it right now because someone's gonna pay me it. That it takes a level of pressure off and it allows for you to truly create organically. And so I think that's what I'm seeking for this year with, with this year's team. Well, you mentioned your theater background. You do have a very strong theater background. Uh, your, por your performance has never failed to captivate. Like you're, you're probably one of the best Thanks. performers around in this thing that you do. Thank you. Uh, what is your approach to performance in poetry versus performance in theater? How are you able to access the emotions necessary for some of your more personal poems? Um, you know, when I was in college, um, I studied theater and I um, took a Shakespeare class, of uh, several of them, and. Um, one of my professors, I, I remember early on, I, I, I was just like, man, like this, I don't understand this. Like this is completely different than anything I've ever done in my entire life. And he was like, it really isn't, man. So like I've heard your poems, and all of your poems have that cadence, that natural built cadence. Um, that's kind of what Shakespeare is attempting to do, or is doing with, with you know, with the flow in his is in his writing. Um, he, 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 he said that all things have natural rhythm and that, that that was really the only thing really that like in my brain separated the two things was sometimes people speak like they're speaking regularly like me and you are right now 
and I feel like in spoken word it's a little bit more like it's just a private conversation with you in the audience so it feels more like a monologue um, the way that I approach it though is is not that similar or different sorry it I, I view them the cadence is probably the only thing that I view as separate is different um, everything else I still try to approach it with the same mentality as an actor because overall I am still trying to act or perform what I'm like the point of my poetry I'm still trying to be really clear about what I'm trying to do the message I'm trying to communicate and every actor sort of has a goal right um, in the beginning of the scene you ask yourself what is my why am I doing this right what is causing me to do this who is causing or who is involved right and you think about all these things and that really allows you to be really critical as an actor which makes you make clear choices um, and so I just try to live truthfully in that moment and I think that's every actor's job is if and if you look at the good ones right they, they're living in that moment every single time they perform that doesn't mean that they act the same way every single time over and over again they sometimes that poem might hit you in a different way than it did two weeks ago right sometimes those words mean more to you than they did the week before or the audience might take them a little bit different which will cause the poet to read and emphasize other things differently and so I feel like my job and my approach is just to be in it truthfully um, there's also though a big thing about poets who read traumatic poems or, or, or poems about their traumatic experiences where it could cause more harm than it does wow you know what I mean like sometimes um, reliving those traumatic experiences can be really painful for, for some of us and so I also feel that, that that's where my training kicks in and that's where you kind of have to realize that you can't force yourself to do that over and over again without scarring yourself so then you have to use different techniques when you're trying to reach some of those emotional levels that you you know where you I try explaining this to some people before. It's like it, as it, you use an as if, so that you're not literally experiencing that same thing over again. You're, you're experiencing an as if emotion, as if. So I want you to acknowledge what emotions you actually felt. Then you try to think about something that was similar to that, or or, or that looks similar, right, to the audience member. So that, that, that you don't have to really put yourself in that moment again and so that it can become healthy instead of you know a lot of spoken words poets put themselves in a really traumatic space just so that they can get a, a good score you know and I don't I think that's kind of contradictory to what we're trying to achieve with this art form so but I do think that uh, my process as a performer is really essential to, to, to what I do and, and I think it Without that process, my work wouldn't be what it is. You know so it I mean? sounds almost like you write the poem, you kind of like do the work as far as what's motivating me, what emotions do I need to access, but then, especially if it's a triggering or a traumatizing piece, you almost have to separate yourself. You right. almost have to approach it as if you were an actor and this was someone else's writing. Right. Like, how would the actor approach this or do this? And so you put that little bit of a buffer between of course, yeah. you and any kind of potential harm. Yeah. I think that's a good so, way to yeah. wrap it up. <laughs> and, uh, well, we, uh, we talked about your performance. Take me through your writing process. What inspires you? And do 
you plan for performance when you write? Or does it or do you write and then try to plan for performance afterwards and how do you know when a piece is done? Uh, so like I, I think I have a pretty weird process uh, because I don't I, I like to talk to myself as I'm writing the poems and I like to create the poem in my head almost first so that I can hear it also at the same time as I'm creating it and then when I'm finished with what I think is a good poem I'll write it down and then be able to actually see it and then edit and then shape and then I think naturally with, because of that style the performance aspect becomes like you know they become one I think as I'm writing it in my head I am also thinking about how I'm going how I'm going to perform it um, I think with with me the way that I think about my poems is not I'm not just going to use these poems in a slam poem poetry competition I'm going to use this poem when I perform for kids at schools I'm going to use this poem at some point uh, and convert it into a theatrical piece you know or we might do a music video to this and so um, I think that liberates me a little bit more and to not having to necessarily like just write a poem right it, it, it feels like it's already from a four-dimensional uh, uh, approach so there's already other things that are happening and I'm planning for um, there are several times where I feel like I just write for the sake of writing um, and I don't think a lot of those times those poems make it into the slam right some of those poems just live in my poetry book or like you know like in my mind or like you know and I like to do this thing where I rec what is it voice voice recorder thing I'll just and they'll just might just live in the file in my computer or on Google Docs right and one day I might look at it and be like that's tight but I do feel like most of the poems that I perform are definitely impacted by the audience or by who is going to hear it at some point or how I can make them digest it but at the same time still be true to my own self. Um, if you've heard any of my work, some people will say that I am borderline offensive, right? Like some of the things that I say push the line or, or push so that people can feel uncomfortable at some points um, or feel like you're, they're being a little bit, um, not them personally, but society's being criticized. And if they are a part of that group, then they, they will feel criticized, I guess, themselves. So I guess my, my challenge is not so that the, the people will like my poems more and give them a better score, but I think naturally, if my work is more universal, then that will happen naturally, right? Those scores will go up naturally if the poem is is understandable. Um, I think most poets think about it like that, like, oh, you write for the for the audience, right? Then you're just writing for the scores. Um, ultimately, I would feel 100% comfortable never winning anything if all the people are like, I really understood what your poem said to me. And even though you didn't win, 
I still left with something. I still left with an intention of either doing something or, you know what I mean, making other people feel better about this issue or this topic that you just discussed. So, I, you know, I, I, I would be a liar if I said that I did not let the audience um, or, in, you know, because I'm a spoken word artist. I, I want people, to, I want to perform it for them. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a social guy. I'm an actor. And so I want to, I want them to t be able to digest it and not just be like, oh, he said racism. Fuck that guy. Right? I'm not listening to anything else he's saying. Um, so I do, I do definitely, I am impacted by that. Well, you've experienced success on many levels in SLAM, from National Poetry SLAM to Brave Voices to iWhips. Uh, what are the major differences between competing at like a BMV versus an NPS, or an NPS versus an iWhips? Uh, I think naturally, as young people, <laughs> Especially in the poetry like community, um, when I went to Brave New Voices, uh, it felt like everyone was more welcoming, and it wasn't necessarily a competition. I think everyone kind of understood that there's like 400 teams here, right? Like only four of us are gonna make it. So naturally, they were like okay with not making it. Um, it felt more welcoming, more like free. It, it felt like people actually were listening to each other's work. Um, and in the, in, the, in the adult scene, it felt a little bit more about ego, right? Like a, a little bit more about um, your personal success. Um, I mean, you know, I, I think Denver is, is a great city for this because every single time we've ever been to nationals together, right? I know that I'm going to be at your bout at some point and you're going to be at our bout as well. Right, and Mercury Cafes was what I'm referring to, right? Like any time, I've always experienced that, right? And we all know that, right? Like you were our coach one year, right? And even though most of the times we had seen you be on the Merc, representing for the Merc, so we know that like we are a family, but I don't feel like most other cities, not, not all of them, but I, a lot of those places don't share that communal aspect of it. So it did feel a little bit more like, um, like it was an actual battle, you know what I mean? And I like that. So that, that's kind of what brought me into it, you know? So I, I don't mind that at all. I, I, I think that's just one of the differences. I think in the, in the national uh, idea, people have to balance, or I mean in the adult nationals, people have to balance like their jobs and then like, you know, their kids. So it does make it a little bit more complicated. And the crazy thing is when we're on the youth team, I think we produce like twice as much group pieces one time as the adult team just because we didn't have anything to do. You know, we were kids and we were writing. And so um, there was definitely more of an added a level of stress in the adult fundraising and like, you know, paying for it when you're there. Um, but I also think that the work, it, it was more critical. It was like, I think, um, clear to understand. And it's, I mean, like, you know, I, I feel like the, it, it does take a step of like quality, maybe if you would want to say. Um, I whipped, I feel like every poet takes their best poems. Every single poet out there has like one good poem that will smash right everyone not just everyone in every city almost and so I feel like it, it's a really it's a game man you know what I mean and I whipped is like the perfect example of it um, 
in, in group pieces, right? Someone might affect or impact uh, the audience and it might save you, right? Like it might let, allow your team to do well. At iWhips, it's all just you, right? And you're representing yourself and it, it's all on you every single time you're up there. And so it's a lot, it's, it's a lot scarier. It's a lot more like nerve wracking. Um, but I think that all of those poets are like super into it, right? So it's like in every team, the one person who really, really took it, to, like who really, really, really like just the, it's all they wanted to do. I feel like all those poets just come together and they just like sword fight all day. So it is a little bit, you know, it's a little, it's a little bit like a, a freaking war out there. But the thing that I will say is that every single time the bouts are over. I have made friends with all of the poets who were in my bouts. I have not made one enemy in the entire sword fight. Right? Like, and I feel like that's most people's experience. Maybe not everyone, but I've always felt welcomed. And I feel like um, at the end of the day, I know that it's a game. And I know that all of these things are just happening because of, we're in this freaking game that we all love to play. And in the end of the day, we all different humans and we you know and so i think it's it's sweet man i think it's so cool that we can like create this fake conflict and then be friends right afterwards you know what i mean like yo that was fun they just hung it out <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right uh you've also started delving more deeply into music with your band Los Mopachetes. yeah how has that experience been for you and what are your goals in music you know, I always thought poetry and music should always just be together. <laughs> like, I, I've, I've just always kind of felt that way just because I love music. And just because I feel like most of the times when I write poems, they're naturally almost written to music, you know? Maybe not like cadence-wise, but like there's just, there's always music around and all those sounds just make it to me feel more full, right? More of a full performance. Um, I think a lot of the times as spoken word artists or as slam poets, we get caught up in this idea that like our poems can only exist in one venue, right? Like this is a slam poem. It can only be used for slam, right? And I think that music really allows or liberates some of that, right? Like it, no, this can be a longer poem, right? There's no time frame in this song. Usually this is a three minute poem. We can stretch it and be make some of those emotional things actually really, really connect and make them work much better, right? With pausing and, 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 and like um, other acting decisions that we, you know, performance tips, things that we could do and, and just make it a four minute poem, you know? And this song can help liberate some of that. Um, for me, as a writer, uh, they're always like different, it's just a different style that I write in, right? Um, songs. I think most of us kind of know the typical structure of a song, right? And like, I think as a poet, as a spoken word or slam poetry or poet who, who has to compete against other people who have also mastered and understood that same format of writing, right? It makes me want to write songs from a different perspective. Right? It makes me want to write third field songs instead of regular, you know, regular um, what we're all used to. So I feel like first chorus, right, first chorus, right, let's play with the format. Exactly, let's play with the format, let's play with that, and that's ultimately going to do the same thing with my poetry, right? I think that's helping me explore different angles or different approaches, different things. Um, 
I think it's really cool that in this city you can be a spoken word artist, a hip hop artist, be in a rock and roll band, an actor, and you know what I mean? Like, there's all these venues for you to do this. And, and my goal ultimately is to make sure that all of those things live in one piece, right? Um, I recently did a show at Su Teatro called Grab Your Rocks and Throw, which was a combination of all of my poems, um, a few of my songs, and I had a 10, per, a, a 10 actor cast. And so I was really able to create and bring all of my three loves into one. I had a guitar player, I, I had it, I'm a, uh, instead of doing the sound effects, a guy who was running soundboard, I had my brother live DJ and cut some of those sound effects. And so it, it was all living in one space. It was hip hop, it, there was dance, there was um, poetry, there was acting and you know, I, I, I did things that with my poems that I never even knew could be possible, right? And like, there's a, a, a stereotype poem, right, that I kind of used all 10 bodies to create different stereotypes that were being discussed in the poem. And at the end, we all combined and created one image. So it looked like all these stereotype hats were all living in one person and they were just expanding and coming back and expanding. And I was like, man, I would have never been able to see that if it wasn't for all of these things coming together in one. So yeah, that's my goal ultimately, man, is to, to, to make produce work that lives outside of SLAM, that, that lives not, not only just in theater, but right on, in all these venues at once, so that there is no boundaries, right? That we can easily take this show and do it at Cervantes if we wanted to, right? We can easily take this show and do it at the Performing Arts Center or at... Um, you know the Mercury Cafe or at Cafe Cultura you know any of these these menus um, and you know that that's kind of a the school of theater that I come from right is the Chicano theater there's this term called rascuachi which means the type of work that you can do anywhere right with anything you don't need no stage we got a curtain you know what I mean like we don't need um, seats we have we can pretend we don't we don't need real masks we can make masks right now it's the concept of making with what you have and doing, you know, making best with what you have. And I think that's the kind of show I always want to produce. Um, that's my end goal with all of this. Last question. Same last question I ask everybody. So you're walking along the beach, you find a magic lamp on the beach, you're up three times, magic genie pops out. It says you have one wish for Denver Poetry. What is your one wish for Denver Poetry? My wish is that we can build a strong enough foundation where this scene survives for the next hundred years. And that my children and, and, and whoever else's children come out. <laughs> that they can all benefit and enjoy and commune and you know like be a part of this thing that we all got the fucking pleasure of experiencing ourselves i think that this poetry community has like i i like don't want to be cliche but it really has saved my life and all i want is for it to survive long enough for other people to be impacted as much as i was impacted by this beautiful thing that we have what do you think it would take 
what, what, what work do we need to do to ensure that foundation either you know, gets perpetuated or gets built? What do you think? Well, I think, you know, you asked me a, a question earlier about like responsibility as a person who has been on the team. And, and I think that's kind of what it takes. Um, in the past few years, I've seen poets leave and never come back. You know what I mean? Um, and I can't even say, you know, I'm, this is a criticism on myself as well because I, I have a tendency of like coming in maybe a few times throughout the year. Um, you know, we all have things to do. And, but I feel like what it would take is, is more people like yourself and, and Piper and, and, you know, Johnny and, um, you know, Ada Cruz, you know, who, who like, I hate to say it, but like don't sleep probably, right? Like commit themselves to the scene. And I think someone else is going to come in and they're going to take those, you know, things. And then that's just what it's going to take responsibility and like accountability, not just for other people, myself as well. And I think like, you know, all that work will pay off and we will, we will see it. You know, that's, that's what it's always happened. So if anybody's listening out there, you know, and if you're feeling like the same thing is happening, where you're like, man, yeah, I'm talking to you, right? Let's all come back, fool. We haven't, <laughs> like, let's all be a part of this, right? I miss some of these old school poets that I haven't seen in years, man. Like, I want to see them again. I want all our young poets to see, you know, how the scene was like eight years ago. When ever, like, I remember, you know, like, you remember the Barrio Slam? How many people would come out to the damn Barrio Slam? Like my first one, like twenty-two people. Twenty-two poets, right? And it was cutthroat, and uh, all those poets. Where'd y'all go, man? <laughs> but yeah, you know, I think that's what it takes is, is us taking ownership in this. You know? uh, huge thank you to Jose Guerrero. Uh, anything you want to say before I turn the microphone off? No man, thank you for for for, for uh, making this possible, man. I think it's really great. Um, you know, I like I always wonder why nobody started a podcast. I just didn't want to do it myself. And so hell yeah, look, Eddie made the move. That's awesome, man. Thank you for doing this. I think this is really cool. I'm excited to see um, slowly the, the growth of this because I, you know, Jenny was like, oh yeah, I saw uh, someone sharing that the other day, and I think it's cool, man. I think this is really really neat, and I also think it's. You're a fucking historian, man. You're capturing all of this. You know, someone has, ah, I want to write a book about the Denver Poetry Slam scene. This is the first step, I think. You know what I mean? Unfortunately, like, we didn't, nobody else took this upon themselves before, but I think this, this is a great thing that you're doing, this, man. I'm really excited. Um, we're, next next uh, Friday, uh, Los Mocochetes um, are playing at Cafe Cultura. It's a good place for you to catch some really cool poetry. Um, sorry, this Friday. And, um, and also check out our band. We're a combination of all kinds of crazy shit. Hip-hop, poetry, um, jazz. And we'll be playing at Cafe Cultura this Friday. Is it still at 9th and Galapago? That's right. 9th and Galapago. Uh, and also uh, I said to Shango is featuring uh, the Aurora Poet Laureate. We'll be there as well. So come check it out. It's going to be dope. All right. We'll check them out. Los Mocachetes at... Cafe Cultura, 9th and Galapago, check out Asia 2 Shango. That's going to be May 12th, Friday. And thank you again so much for donating your time here. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Another fantastic interview. Put it in the books. Print, 
cut, seal it, ship it. Hoser Guerrero talking about all the things, talking about performance, talking about poetry, talking about music and theater and background and all the things. I'm so happy, so thankful that he was able to donate his time and really uh, open up in the way that he did. So another gigantic thank you to Hoser for being my interview this week. And I do want to touch on the last thing he said. Part of my goal with this podcast, part of my goal with this project is to preserve some of the history here in uh, the Denver Poetry Slam scene. It's a, a goal I've had for a very long time. I've always wanted to write a book about this. I've always wanted to catalog the history of the Denver Poetry Slam scene. But how do you preserve the history of something that's still alive and breathing and changing? Well, apparently you start a podcast. Because <laughs> uh, that's I think, seems to be one of the ways that we can uh, both catalog history and still document uh, the, the ways in which this art form, the ways in which this venue is moving and shaping and changing. So uh, another gigantic thank you to Hoser. Uh, could not have been more gracious with his time. Uh, more quick hits before we say goodbye for you here. Uh, don't forget, Sunday, May 21st, we have Ash Vernon and Jordan Hamilton featuring at the Mercury Cafe. This upcoming Sunday is a minor disturbance youth slam, so you definitely want to check that out. But remember, only youth age 13 to 19 are open to slam. Everybody else needs to be resigned to the open mic, and you better get there early because the open mic fills up really quick. Uh, get there before 7.30 so you can stand in line and maybe, hopefully, get a chance of putting your name on that list. Uh, this week, I want to thank you to Paulie Lippman. Crap, I got into art to avoid responsibility. And I want to send a huge thank you to Jill Carno. Yeah, it was really <laughs> nice for me. And a thank you to all the audience, the judges, to Marilyn McGinnity at the Mercury Cafe. You are all so incredible. Every time I get on this stage, I get so nervous because you're all so amazing and so beautiful, and I'm like, what the fuck? Uh, we will see you next week. Until then, remember, the points are not the point. The poetry is not even the point. The point is, was, and always will be the people. We'll see you next week.